I want people to be able to hear an alternative viewpoint. And if they're going to reject what I'm saying, that's okay. People can reject what I'm saying. What I hope happens though, is that they can at least hear it and they can understand the perspective and then they can reject it. That's okay. We don't all have to agree about everything, but we do have to learn how to live in community with each other. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Xander Kegg. He is a licensed clinical social worker in Florida, a senior fellow on the advisory board for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. He is a member of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH, and he's also a trans man. So as you can imagine, with this background, Xander has some unique experience and perspective to bring to the critical conversations we have here on this podcast. I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Xander, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephanie. It's a wonderful opportunity to be here to be able to speak with you. Yeah. Um, can you give a little bit of a summary of your background and how we found ourselves here today? Sure. Um, well, I'm 56 years old. I'm, I'm from California originally. I moved to Florida in 2013. I come from a Mexican family. I'm first generation born in the United States. I've been married for almost 20 years now. I met my wife while we were studying in seminary. I have a master's in theology in addition to my master's in social work. I'm a U.S. Coast Guard veteran. I served in the Coast Guard back in the 1980s. I worked um, with uh, at-risk kids and veterans for and in law enforcement for a number of years before becoming a social worker. So I've, I'm new to the social work um, occupation. Uh, I've been in, in it for 10 years now, and uh, I'm connected with social workers all over the year, all over the, not the year, <laughs> all over the nation, uh, mostly because I was a member of NASW for 11 years. And as a member with them, I was also appointed to serve on the National LGBT Issues Committee. And through that, I was able to meet with people um, and get to know a lot of people and was given the award of Social Worker of the Year in 2020. And that really elevated um, people knowing who I am. And so people would reach out to me. And so over the last few years, I've been able to connect in with a lot of social workers. And um, many of them that I'm connected with know you. And so I was introduced to you and I learned about your podcast. And I thought, oh, I love talking to people on podcasts. So I, I've got in touch with you and, and here we are. All right. So let me just put this out there. What is a trans man like you uh, doing talking to an alleged transphobic turf Nazi bigot like myself? <laughs> well, I do not actually consider myself a Nazi for our listeners, just to make that clear. You're okay but with all the other. Named. Um, well, let, let me explain. Yes. Like, I think I want back 
the words like woman and sex and words like that, you know, if a special interest group wants to make up their own vocabulary around like what trans means to them and what transphobe means to them and what turf means to them. Yeah, I consider all those slurs, but they can have that language. I'm going to choose my battles and people are going to call me what they're going to call me. You know, you and I in our own ways have both been called lots of things by lots of nasty people in our lives. So uh, I, I speak this with a light heart and obviously in jest, but as someone who is, you know, hated by much of the trans community, um, and I know one of the things you want to talk about is how there is no unified trans community, but I just wanted to offer, you know, you the opportunity to say, as a trans person, how do you feel safe or comfortable or why would you want to talk to someone like me? Well, as a, as a clinician, my first response to that is that I provide for my own safety, right? I don't rely on, on you or anybody else to provide that safety for me. So um, I'm, I'm well-versed in regulating my own emotions and tolerating my own distress and managing my own stress levels. So I can take care of myself. And I love talking with people. I especially enjoy talking with people who come from divergent viewpoints or just even maybe similar viewpoints, but maybe um, verbalized differently. That's probably where we align a little bit is that we might use different language. And that's just because I'm in the quote trans community and you're not. Um, however, I have been called transphobic by members of the trans community. I have been told I'm toxically masculine as a trans man. I've been called a racist as a Latino. I've, um, right. And so if I were to go through the list of things, like I fit all the, I fit a bunch of categories that should be protecting me from these things, right? Like, so I'm trans, I'm Latino. I'm disabled, right? I have, I have uh, neurocognitive, you know, issues. Um, I think, what do we say? I'm neurodiverse. I didn't, I, um, that's not a new word for me, but it, I'm, it's a new word that people have sort of said that I should identify as. I do not, but I have those issues, right? Supposedly, I'm, I'm supposed to be protected from all of those things, but, but I'm not, right? Um, so I'm on the receiving end too. I haven't been called a Nazi, um, Yet. I've been called a right winger, which is not the case. Same. Um, I've been, you know, for me, a white, a right winger would be somebody who's like a member of the clan or somebody who's part of the Aryan brotherhood or somebody who likes to, you know, I don't know, burn down buildings or something. Um, and I'm also not a left winger, which are people who, you know, like to burn down buildings <laughs> and completely destruct and deconstruct and um, just notions, you know, that, that, um, that exist. That's not to say that every notion they're trying to deconstruct should be in, in establishment or should be the golden rule, but we should at least be able to come to a a meeting, you know, of minds and find ways to make change in a less destructive way. And so that means we're going to come to the table and talk with people who either like, I'm going to come and talk to you, whether I agree with you or not, I don't know yet. We haven't had any other engagement. And even if we don't agree, I'm perfectly okay with that. You are entitled to your own thoughts and your own experience and your own communication as I am. And so, yeah, the trans community is not a monolith. There's no consensus. There's no specific words that are that are in or out of vogue in a broader sense, right? Um, I, let me give you one example. So the word tranny, right? The word tranny has been problematized 
And so people are being told, don't ever use that word. And I'd say, well, I use that word. And I know a lot of transsexuals who use that word. And I use that word to describe myself sometimes. And I've been doing that for 22 years. This is not a new word. Um, the fact that it became popularized within a particular pornographic you know, um, context doesn't mean that we should stop using it. The, People are now using the word queer. I don't use that word. I don't like that word. I have used it in the past. I haven't used it in many years. And um, but where many of us are being told that we should adopt that word. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> no, some of us aren't going to do that. And that should be OK, too. Right. I, I really loved how you started off that answer. You talked about being responsible for your own sense of emotional safety. And it's just it's just practical, right? You're a licensed clinical social worker. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. We have very different roles and we're hopefully going to get into uh the role of social work today. Um but you know, as mental health professionals of various kinds, we know how important it is to be able to count on yourself that no matter where you go, who you encounter, what challenges are in front of you, you know you're going to be okay, right? It's that that yeah. inner locus of control. And that's something I really worry about. You know, of course, my my haters are, you know, they, they love to call me hateful. Uh, all the negative reviews on my podcast use the word hate, um, which to me seems like a projection. Um, I don't really feel like I, I hate anybody. I'm I see trans people as people who have uh, adopted a certain set of beliefs and made a certain set of choices. And uh, I mostly feel concern for the people in that community. And uh, I'm doubtful that those choices are the right choices for many people. Um, but, uh, oh, what was I going to say? But but one, one of my concerns for the mental health and the long-term outcomes, which hopefully we'll talk about today, of, of transgender people is that it seems like uh, they're, they're kind of being taught by one another that you absolutely should get all worked up and feel intolerable levels of emotion and flip into rage or despair about things that are outside of your control. And who does that? People who are very dysfunctional do that. And, you know, you and I, with our various backgrounds in clinical work, we've seen what happens when a person cultivates that mentality for years on end. We've seen what the lives of people who are severely disabled by, let's say, like, severe borderline personality disorder, what those lives look like. And we would not wish that outcome upon anyone, right? So one of my major concerns right now is that uh, among the many things where um, I feel like the informed consent process for people who seek gender affirming care, as it's called, what that process looks like, I think um, one of the things that's left out of the informed consent process is that process of assessing are you prepared to face the world knowing that none of us can guarantee that the red carpet's going to roll out for you, right? Like, are you prepared to live as a trans man or trans woman or whatever, 
if, um, you know, the legislation doesn't go through in your favor, right? If, if, or if some of these things are reversed so that you're not actually allowed to just use gender self-ID to trump all sex-based protections. And what if you encounter people who don't like you? I just think that the it's never been guaranteed for any of us that everyone's going to like us, right? <laughs> like yes. like yes. we're we're protected from discrimination in the eyes of the law. That's what human rights yes. is about, right? It's it um but that doesn't mean that everything's always going to go in your favor. And so I worry that that um many trans people aren't going to be able to say something as mature and grounded as what you said for yourself they're not going to be able to say that for themselves because they're they're cultivating the exact opposite attitude and then it's no wonder that we have to worry about long-term suicide risk and self-harm and other you know poor outcomes for folks yeah well I'd like to say something about resilience something about informed consent so if I lose track please remind me my little okay. ADH brain has a hard time keeping track sometimes. I was going to write it down, but it'd probably make a lot of noise. <laughs> and I'd be looking down like this and people would wondering what I was doing. Um, what I will say is that you're right. We can't control whether people like us or not. And what we can control is the kind of person we are, right? The our temperament to a certain degree is a bit set, but we can, there are things that we can do, right? To build on our default settings and we can uh, take classes. We can expose ourselves to other kinds of people and other ideas and we can, we can build up that resiliency. I'll just talk about that first off. And we can also, you know, being resilient, emotionally mature and, um, socially adept are not innate qualities. These are things that need to be cultivated over in our entire lives, starting right in our right, starting when we're children. And if we're not being raised in an environment where those skills are being modeled, right? If we're living in a household with adults who don't know how to regulate their emotions, how are we to learn those things? And we're not going to learn it at school. School's not for that. That it's, School is not like an emotion regulation boot camp, right? Although now with some of the um, social emotional learning that, that has been put into the schools, I think they're attempting to do that through emotional intelligence development. But most of us are going to get it from our homes. And so, well, if we don't get it in our homes and we're not necessarily going to get it in the schools, where are we going to get it? Ultimately, we're going to have to learn where to get it in our adulthood years. And most, I wouldn't say most, many people don't ever, don't ever increase their emotional intelligence uh, beyond their default setting. Because, I don't know, it could be poverty, it could be addiction, it could be, um, there's a lot of reasons why. And so, so it's like, I would set aside to a certain degree people that have multiple barriers. But then there are people who have some barriers, but not as many of others who sometimes are the most outspoken about their own quality of life or their own obstacles without much attention to the fact that there are others who are well worse off than them. And, um, right, it gets very um, self-focused. And so that's kind of an issue that comes up. People might refer to that as maybe like a 
narcissistic kind of tendency or trait. I've heard people use that kind of language. Um, but it's the informed consent process is interesting when you, oh, let me back up and say the language that's being used in a broad sense, like say from the media or from the national LGBT organizations, right? The nonprofit organizations, they'll use language like we're being erased, right? Like is, which is pretty, that's pretty strong language. Um, if you really look up the idea of erasing people, that's where somebody comes to your home, drags you out, and you never return. Like, that's the real lived experience for people all around the world. So we're using, we're elevating language. We're using words like harm, when really what we mean is discomfort. Right? It's, it's not harm, it's discomfort. We need to learn how to differentiate between those two. So the words that are being used by the people that are probably not as affected are then being broadcast out broadly. And then the people who are feeling like either they are the receiver of those harms or that erasure, or they suspect that at any moment they may become because we're they're part of that target group, right? Like I'm a part of the target group, I guess. Um, then they internalize that and that develops anxiety and maybe depression and suicidality and the uh, self-numbing through alcohol and drugs and, and whatever else people are doing, right? And so I get why people are doing what they're doing when they're escaping and numbing and, and becoming activists because they're being told that there are people out there that are coming after them to erase them. And that's, um, I really wish that people would be more sensitive in the language they're using so that it wouldn't cause this level of response. At the same time, I think they're probably being very successful in their, um, in their acquisition of donor dollars by scaring people. So, you know, I, I think it's a tactic. I just don't, I don't like that tactic because I think it's um, making more and more people, it's driving more and more people into psychotherapy that probably could have just been benefited from a peer support group or a coach, right? But it's driving people into psychotherapy, maybe even residential psychiatric treatment because they believe that somebody's coming to get them. And now that's not to say that there aren't anecdotal circumstances where an individual was the target of some really off, you know, unhinged person. That happens. That's not a systemic issue. That's not a, um, a broad issue that we, that we should all be attentive to, to that alarming rate, right? Um, it's, it's not... Um, we're not being rounded up and put in ghettos, you know. There's German, a lot of right, like they're using that kind of fear-based yes. language. There is a lot of hyperbole and histrionics and fear-mongering, and then that gets used yeah. to justify yeah. actually behaviors that are really oppressive to others. Um, besides this group that's seeing themselves as as the targeted group, you know, it reminds me uh, the other day I 
was watching on YouTube a recorded um, Zoom meeting of uh, the school district that my stepkids go to because I, I wanted to kind of get a sense of how they operate and how ideologically infiltrated they've been. And so I was looking out for signs. You know, it started with a land acknowledgement. There was someone with pronouns in her name um, on the screen. And there are many mentions of anti-racism. And I was just like trying to pick up on how all of that is being held and framed for the kids. Um, and then there is this, uh, part of the meeting that was open to, uh, anyone, uh, from the community who wanted to speak for two minutes and the board was just there to listen and take their comments into, uh, account not to respond to them. And a few parents came and there was one father who came to speak about a proposed fence that, uh, one of the schools was going to erect around the property. And he was one of a couple of people who had showed up to that meeting to voice his opposition to the fence because of issues like, um, you know, feeling kind of boxed in and how it doesn't look good and how it um, reduces home value, all of which is very understandable. He also brought up how members of his community, some of them were elderly and the location of the fence might create some ambulatory issues. So all of this sounded very reasonable. And it's like, yeah, as a homeowner and as a parent of a kid in the school district, you have a right to come to this meeting and say that you don't want this fence and here are your reasons. But then he said that as a Japanese American, as one of two Japanese American uh, residents he was speaking on behalf of, that this fence reminded him of the Japanese internment. Hmm. And I thought, what? <laughs> like, like, you live in a really comfortable house in a nice neighborhood where your kids have good schools and you get to enjoy a lovely view. And I totally get not wanting to have an unsightly fence. I totally get that on your side here. But I, I mean, supposing that he did have a parent or grandparent who was one of the interned Japanese, I wonder how that, you know, if that relative could hear them speaking, like, how can you co possibly compare the suffering of a safe, happy, like, upper-middle-class family with a nice house and an unsightly fence to that level of horrific oppression? And it just, and I was like, D is he deliberately pulling the race card because we live in such a woke city that he knows that's a way to gain control in this situation? It was just... It was really disturbing to me. And that, that so that's the, that's like the most recent example that comes to my mind of how hyperbolic and histrionic people are in talking about social justice issues. Um, yeah, I mean, there, of course, there's the transgenerational transmission of trauma, right? So you learn about how, you know, one generation experiences a direct trauma and, we hear about it for an African-American community, Hispanic community, Jewish community, Japanese, like all the different, you know, indigenous communities. It's like there's there's one particular generation going pretty far back that had, you know, the most direct and then it gets a little more, you know, becomes more and more indirect to a certain degree. But if through all the generations, what's transmitted is not just the stories, but the emotion and the way you ought to feel about it. 
right? If there's no, um, if there's no working through that level of trauma, that is, you know, it's horrible, right? The Japanese internment camps was, was, um, you know, it's, it's quite a blight, you know, in our history. Um, even, even if at the time it seemed like the right thing to do because we we're at war with Japan. I mean, you know, this is, you know, in times of war, nations do things that. Um, so it's like it's possible that that one individual had been raised in one of those kinds of families where the the memories are kept alive, which I understand wanting to retain memories as a people. I mean, especially, you know, for for peoples that have existed pre-written word, right, through oral traditions, these things. At the same time, the ability to, right, and we do this with uh, with people with PTSD, right, through exposure therapy, some other things, you can continue the story, but tr- but but finding a way to emotionally disengage from that story so that it doesn't cause current, you know, distress when when talking about the story. And I, I you know, so it's, I mean, I, I don't know in particular about this person and that story, but, but I hear, I hear things like that come up quite regularly, you know, that there's some reference back to something that is not happening right now. So we don't want to ignore it. We don't want to deny it. We don't want to, to put it in a box and, and shelve it and never look at it again. At the same time, we can acknowledge those things, but they don't have to have such an emotional impact on us today, even if we want to experience it emotionally, but not to the degree that it's impacting our physical, our emotional, our mental, and our social well-being. That's when that's when you can see that people have not acquired a skill set for emotion regulation, distress tolerance, stress management, things like that. I think you're being quite charitable. And I agree with so much of what you're saying, like as general wisdom for people who have PTSD, right? And in this case, I often get told that I'm quite charitable. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm quite diplomatic. And I do that intentionally because I, I want, I want people to be able to hear an alternative viewpoint. And if they're going to reject what I'm saying, that's okay. People can reject what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. What I hope happens though, is that they can at least hear it and they can understand the perspective and then they can reject it. That's okay. We don't all have to agree about everything, but we do have to learn how to live in community with each other. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. 
The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I I see your charitable charitableness in in that situation being that you're kind of assuming that this was said in earnest, right? That that this person actually has some kind of PTSD from growing up with those yeah. stories of how terrible, you know, that that he actually has the the real experience that when he sees an unsightly fence he feels trapped and his nervous system goes into a reactive state. I just, when I see like a well-off middle-class family, <laughs> like I just, I'm like, I don't believe that you actually have like PTSD around fences because of your ancestors. And um, I, I mean, we're getting a little bit off track here, but I do love that you represented that perspective because I think the perspective you just represented is kind of the the classic and pragmatically useful approach as, as mental health professionals, you know, the approach that like you can learn resilience, you can learn to move through the world despite triggers. Um, and trigger is mm. another one of those words that's become yes. applied to everything, right? The traditional definition of trigger is, you know, has to do with um, having a, a real visceral re-experiencing response to something reminiscent of a a legit trauma. And now it's just like, I just feel like people are taking these mental health concepts, like the idea of a trigger or the idea of any diagnosis and kind of spinning it to mean things that are actually not helpful because, okay, supposing, let's take that at face value. Let's say that that is a legitimate trigger for you. And anything can be a trigger for, I mean, I, you know, I've worked with someone with, for whom a certain popular song was playing while a certain horrible thing happened. And so, you know, you can never know. They'll make that that association and that's in the brain, you know? Yes. Right. But But we can, we can dislodge that connection. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but instead it seems like the the culture is kind of heading in this direction where anything that could be labeled a trigger is now like we have to just eliminate it from human life and from our vocabularies and we just have to kind of pad the world. Um, I, I feel like we could get lost down that track though. I remember you wanted me to bring you back to informed consent because you said yeah, you were going to say yeah. something about resilience, which you did. What were you going to yes, say about informed consent? Let me uh, let me before I talk about that. Let me just mention, you know, um, in 2015, um, in November, if you remember what was happening in November of 2015, there was an election. 
I had a call from a friend or maybe an email, but I think it was a call from a friend a couple of days after the election. And they told me they had just purchased a gas mask and that they hoped that I was ready. And I was like, I said, ready for what? And this, this is a licensed clinical social worker. I'm not going to say what state, um, who was, uh, and a trans person who believed that they were going to be rounded up and put into some sort of camp and that, and they bought a gas mask. I, I'm not sure how those two things are related, but, and they wanted to know where should they instruct their clients? Cause they were so discombobulated. They couldn't even think of where they should instruct their clients to relocate to for safety outside of the United States. And I was like, I thought about it for a few minutes and I said, well, I hear there's a lot of expats in Costa Rica. I mean, I just didn't know how to respond to this person. I'm like, this person is not going to be able to be emotionally and mentally available for all their clients because of the, what is that? The transference, right? Um, So there's, I I was just, I was dumbstruck by that. So, so it's, you know, this is how, how these things, and it's like, you know, well, they have a history, right? They're, they grew up Jewish. It, it, was that kind of message, right? Like, where did they get this messaging, right? That That's a real thing, right? Um, and so from history. So, okay. Informed consent. This is tricky because informed consent, a lot of people think of informed consent. It, you get a form and at the top of it, it says informed consent. And it has a lot of language that's very legal in nature and medical in nature, meaning it's legal and scientific. And it's given to a patient or a client in isolation, typically, right here, fill out all these pieces of paper and then bring them back up to the counter or upload them into a system. And then it's like, well, good to go, informed consent. And so I have a lot of issues around this. And one of them is that the, according to the health literacy lab here in the United States, the literacy, scientific literacy in the United States is very poor, right? Something like 20% of people living in the United States have a basic understanding of science so that they could read something medical or scientific and really understand it in its in its scientific way, right? It, like they can they can read the word, they can pronounce the word, and they know the definition of the word. They know the context. They know the applicability. Well, if that's the case, we're having uh, people read forms that have legal language, scientific language. We have no idea if they are comprehending what they're reading. So. I, th- I think that we should be going over point by point what is on an informed consent with a client or patient in the first session. Because if a person cannot understand, then they're not becoming informed. And if they're not becoming informed, they cannot consent. So one of the issues about this is, you know, I think the informed consent process should happen in tandem with a comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment, right? These things should be couched together in the first, uh, you know, two or three sessions, depending on how comprehensive you want to get. And so I don't think that that's happening in large numbers. I do not think that when when a patient goes to see a surgeon, when they fill out that in 
informed consent form that the provider is actually sitting down with them and giving them a lot of information. For example, I heard a story yesterday from a much older trans man. He's in his, um, I believe he's in his 60s. I'm in my 50s. Um, and he was um, in communication with a, a trans person in their 20s who had just had a pretty complicated surgery, not chest reconstruction or top surgery, much more, you know, um, com- you know, complex surgery. When they got home, they didn't have any, any supplies, any medical supplies. Nobody had told them that they needed to have gauze and tape and like nothing. They had nothing. They weren't prepared for their aftercare. The person that was um, living with them at the time, the, their partner in the house, um, they were never brought in and counseled about that, right? And so I was a medical social worker for, for a number of years, and I used to work um, on, um, you know, assessing caregivers for things like um, organ transplant, for example, right? If somebody's getting an organ transplant surgery, you need to find out who is your primary caregiver. They have to come in for an assessment. They need to be told, these are all of the duties. This is what your responsibilities are going to be. You're going to need to go up to this other state and spend a whole week there while the person is getting surgery and and in the hospital. And they're going to be teaching you about all the aftercare things that you need to do. Are you capable? Are you available? Are you willing to do that? Um, I was talking to somebody the other day about how when they had a knee replacement surgery, their caregiver, the person that was going to be driving them to appointments and being around the house with them, they had to come in and go through some like uh, aftercare instructions, um, more so than just here's some paperwork and, you know, which is, is typical, happens. They had to go and spend like a good hour, hour and a half, two hours with somebody giving them that education. Um, this is not happening in mass with trans surgeries at all, right? And I, so I think that's part of this informed consent process that people are not comprehending what they're reading, if they're reading it at all. Most people just sign the documents. If they're reading it, they might not be comprehending it. If they're not comprehending it, they're not informed and therefore they can't consent. So that's one issue around that. Um, and so I know that that comes up quite a bit because you'll hear people say that we should move to a informed consent model when it comes to accessing cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers or, um, or surgeries, right, trans surgeries. Um, when I hear people talk that way and they describe what they mean by it, it actually to me sounds like harm reduction model. Right, the harm reduction model with people with addiction, where you don't require them to be um, abstinent from their drugs, right? They don't have to be clean and sober to move into housing. They don't have to be clean and sober to take advantage of a program. Um, So you're basically hoping that over time they will, um, you know, they will slow down, right, their usage. They'll minimize their usage, but you don't mandate that they do that. So I think that when it comes to informed consent with like hormones and surgeries, I think there are issues around addiction, issues around um, 
stability in your life, right? And so if they say, well, a trans person shouldn't have to go through psychotherapy in order to get access to hormones and surgeries, well, that's true for people who don't have comorbidities. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have to go through a comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment from, say, a medical social worker. And the medical social worker can then assess, like, you would benefit from psychotherapy or you would benefit from a group therapy or you would benefit from a peer-based discussion group because you're limited in your understanding of what you're about to do. Or, you know, because you have this generalized anxiety disorder, you know, it it might be... Um, there might be some issues that come into play with the hormones or your social adjustment, you know, as this new person in the, in the world. Um, and so that's not happening because people haven't separated out biopsychosocial assessment and psychotherapy because it all gets called mental health. Go see the mental health provider. And people are like, I don't need to see a mental health provider. I did that when I started transition. I refused to go to a therapist. Because I said, I don't, I don't have any comorbidities. I don't need to see a psychotherapist. I was living in San Francisco, and I was able to bypass that system. I now recognize that I could have benefited from at least having somebody to talk to as I was going through that at least the first three to five years. That's very disorienting. At least it was for me. It was a very disorienting process to go from being you know, a very visible masculine woman, a lesbian in, in the world, to... Uh, and a Latina one at that to now becoming what people perceive of as a white straight cis man. That's a very disorienting process um, and experience. So I could have benefited from that. And so ultimately I did check in with, you know, with a therapist along the way, a couple of them just sort of on my own, but I could have benefited in the earlier days from that. Uh, but I was, you know, I was, I was ignorant of that for myself. So, um, Yeah. On the subject of your transition this morning, I was watching one of your interviews with FAIR, and uh, I didn't finish it, but you had said that you did not have a history of childhood dysphoria. You didn't feel like you were in the wrong body. You were just a butch lesbian, but that at the age of 39, the reason that you wanted to transition was because you were just so tired of all the sexism and homophobia that you experienced for being a butch woman in the world. Um, so you, you just shared a little bit just now about how, um, you felt like you didn't think you had any comorbidities at the time. You realized in retrospect, you could have benefited from help with the adjustment, which I mean, no kidding. Um, mm. but like looking back, uh, I mean, you've, you've radically altered your body and you've done the social transition, uh, it would probably be oversimplifying it to say that you did that because of sexism and homophobia. But I mean, looking back, how do you feel about that decision and what motivated it and what it's cost you or what it's given you? Oh boy, there's a lot there. You'll have to remind me again if I get off track. Um, it's so difficult to talk about transition and the coming to an awareness of something within yourself that is called transsexualism or transgenderism or 
gender dysphoria or at the time gender identity disorder. I really didn't like that language, gender identity disorder. Um, you know, I, I just didn't want to be labeled as somebody with a disorder, right? That was that was a ma- big problem for me back at back at the time. Um, I wasn't a social worker back then, right? So this is pre becoming a social worker too, and so I I had more of a layman's understanding of those kinds of things. Um, the idea of being born in the wrong body never suit never suited me. It like it didn't fit me. And you know, you probably heard other people haven't heard the video. You know, I I had um, encephalitis as a child, right? I I took the MMR vaccination. I contracted rubella, which is the R in MMR, and um, I had um, severe seizures. I was put into a medical coma. When they took me out of the coma a couple weeks later, I was paralyzed on the entire left side of my body. So I had to learn how to walk again, talk again, uh, read again, because um, I was also blind in one eye for a period of time. It took me about two years to get back to not what I was previously, because that never happened, but enough so that I could go home and continue with physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. And, you know, I was in a in a wheelchair for a while, then leg braces and then crutches and ultimately, you know, um, you know, fully mobile, so to speak. I have nerve and muscle damage in my left side, but it's not enough to keep me from being able to be upright and mobile. Um, So I'm just so happy to have a body that works. I'm happy to be alive. (laughs) Um, I feel very grateful to have lived through that experience, to survive that experience. Um, I was one of a handful of kids that got sick from that same batch of... um, of uh, vaccinations. And I was one of the only ones that had as good a results as I did. So I, I'm very fortunate. And so I, so it's hard for me to discount that I have a functioning body. So born in the wrong body doesn't make sense to me. I also, all of my memories from childhood were just wiped clean with the encephalitis, right? For those of you who don't know, again, see, this is science language. Encephalitis means inflammation of the brain, right? So that obviously has an impact on certain things. And for me, that one of them is memory. So I don't have memories of my childhood, but from what I gather from my, my parents, my mother is deceased and my father has dementia. So this isn't recent. This is from years ago. I wasn't, um, I wasn't displaying any particular outward signs and I have no recollection whatsoever. If I had any internal sense of some incongruence, what I do know from what my mother told me and, and my grandmother on my father's side was that after the encephalitis, I had a significant personality shift. And that personality shift resulted in me going from being a very quiet, self-occupied kind of child to a very outwardly um, sort of engaged and aggressive child. So I, I had a major switch as a result of that encephalitis so by the time I was 18, that kind of evened out and I was okay, but I was, I was kind of a, what people would call a tomboy. I don't know that that's very in vogue anymore, but I was a tomboy and in my family, that was okay. Um, enough so that nobody said anything to me directly. Um, I learned years later that my aunts and my mother didn't like it at all, but my father who raised me as a single parent was okay with it. So he left me alone. Um, so it's like, I didn't have any of that resistance coming at me, which would have maybe caused me to, um, rebel maybe like rebel against 
gender notions, gender stereotypes. I was also in school in the 70s being told things like, you know, girls can grow up to be anything they want. We could become astronauts and we could become, you know, we could do anything we wanted, right? And so uh, that's how I went through life. And for me, you know, I just fell into, I was masculine in my presentation, just sort of naturally. It wasn't something I did. It wasn't a performance as people might talk about now. Um, and I also found that I was attracted to females, other females. So I became, I was in lesbian relationships. Um, and that did suit me just fine. I, I really didn't have much, much problem, you know, many problems with that. I encountered a lot of homophobia. That is true. Um, and of course, sexism, but you know, that's, you know, that's sort of, I don't know, par for the course in some sense. Um, but it really did start to take a toll on me. And it's the only way that I know how to make sense of what I did, because when I was hearing other people's stories, when I was reading about other people's stories, when I watched films about other people's stories, I couldn't relate to any of them. And so when you can't, when you can't, when I couldn't find a story I could relate to, I had to figure out how to tell my story. And it's, you know, I'm an external processor. So it's possible that if I spent a good long time with a group of people just talking about my life and my experience and my transition and all, I might be able to come to a better more accurate description, but it's the, it's the only one I've been able to land on up to now. And that's because I can just remember that experience where it was just, uh, it felt so heavy that I, I, I remember I said to somebody once, as soon as I started taking testosterone, I felt like I had lifted a hundred pounds off me. I felt like I had, like I was wearing one of those, one of those like metal, you know, coverings like the nights, you know, like I was, I was walking around the world with that. And as soon as I started taking testosterone before any changes at all happened, I just felt like I had lost a hundred pounds from me. I really did feel weighted down by the, the like going out into the world and, and feeling like I was always on the defensive. It was, it was becoming really, really untenable. Um, but I never had thoughts of killing myself. I wasn't self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. Like I wasn't doing any of those things. Um, but it's still, it, it was like an, maybe an accumulation of it. And it, they weren't micro. These aren't microaggressions I was experiencing. I, you know, I had a bottle hurled at my head while I was walking down the street. I had people calling me names. I was being harassed in the bathroom by women and girls. I was like, it was, I was not accepted for a job once and told it's because you're too masculine. I can't send you out in front of the kids, right? Like I was being told these things on a, I was seeing looks in people's eyes that I thought I can't read minds, but see, that's what happens. I'm walking through the world and I'm thinking I'm on the receiving end of negativity. So I started to see it everywhere. And so when I, when people looked at me, my interpretation of their looks was, disgust, contempt, fear, right? Because if I was in the women's bathroom and a woman walked in and she saw me, she was frightened sometimes. She thought I was a man in the woman's bathroom and I, and she was scared. 
Well, that's an awful feel. I didn't like that feeling of knowing that people saw me and were f- afraid. Um, right. Cause at the time as a woman, I understood that feeling, right. Of encountering a man in the women's bathroom. Um, and so I had seen a documentary called You Don't Know Dick, and I had looked at a book full of photographs of trans men called called Body Alchemy. These were both in the um, mid-1990s. And I sort of filed that information away like, oh, so these are people who were like little girls and teenage girls, and then in their adulthood, they took hormones and went and lived as men. I was like, well, that's interesting, but it never occurred to me that to do that until years later, you know, I, I didn't start hormones till 2004. I saw the movie. You don't know Dick in either 95 or 96. So that's a pretty big gap. And I was around the trans community. I, you know, it, it just didn't, it was a very different kind of community then. Um, but I, I, I I'd like to be able to learn to talk about it maybe in a different way that doesn't sound make me sound like I was a victim of something. Cause I don't like that framing. Mm. But again, I, I was perfectly satisfied with being masculine. I, uh, the only thing about me is how I look and sound. I dress the same way I dressed then, right? My gender hasn't changed at all, which is why I don't call myself transgender. Um, I call myself transsexual, even though um, technically my sex hasn't changed. I'm still a female, you know, biologically, or my, my sex is XX chromosome is my sex. Um, but I live in the world as a man. My ID says the, that, that I I'm living in the world as a man. Um, so socially I'm, I'm, I'm walking that space. I have to say you have the most massive beard I've ever seen on a trans man. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I've never shaved my face. So since I started taking testosterone, it's just been growing and growing and growing, and it gets thicker and thicker every, like, a year ago, there was a gap between the hair here under my lip and my beard. There was a gap here. Now it's filling in. It just constantly gets thicker and thicker as I get older and older. Um, so it, 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 for me, it took a lot of years. I think it was six years on testosterone before I had uh, something that was like a a, a good beard, <laughs> and now it's been almost eighteen years. So, um, yeah, it does sound like from your story that if you'd lived in a world that was more accepting of butch women, that you might not have chosen to transition. But it also sounds like you don't see yourself as a victim. And I'm curious how you feel about your transition and how that process has been for you over the last, what, 18 years? Hmm. It, it's pretty much gone really well. I mean, my, my family's been really wonderful. I, you know, I have a, you know, big Mexican Catholic family and they've been really wonderful. And, um, my wife and I have been together for, you know, 20 years and, um, oh, it's, I, it's 17 years of transition. Cause that's how I can, that's mm-hmm. how I make, I can count it. Cause my wife and I've been together 20 years and I started my testosterone three years into the relationship. So a lot of times people hear that, you know, relationships don't last. Um, and it's like, well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in a wonderful relationship and it has, it has lasted. And, um, I've been able to find ways to do the kind of work I want to do. So I've been really fortunate in that respect. I have uh, very good, close, loyal friends 
that have remained such, um, but there are others that were more in an outer circle that have sort of dropped off over the years, and I'm okay with that. Um, I have made new acquaintances and new um, new friends. Um, for the most part, I, medically speaking, I've been also very fortunate. I haven't had any adverse effects from the hormones at all. As a matter of fact, um, for me, what I noticed almost um, pretty, not immediately, but pretty early on in my hormones within the first couple of months is that my mood just leveled off. And it's it's just stayed leveled off. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have experiences of, um, you know, if I'm watching something very sentimental or very touching on a TV or movie, you know, I can get teary-eyed. I'm not unable to cry, like you hear some people say. And that's not to say that I don't get angry. I, I get angry. Um, it's just that I don't live in a state of, of massive fluctuation in my mood. I didn't before, but there was more. There was more of it. Um, just because of, you know, just the cycle, you know, menstrual and hormones and right. So the hormones were all over the place throughout the month. Now they're just very consistent. And I've really enjoyed that. I've enjoyed that consistency and mood. Um, I'm much more calm now than I was before starting hormones. Um, I have had some complications from one of my surgeries, uh, that I had about eight years ago. And so I've been, over the course of the last eight years, I've been navigating through the system to um, sort of manage those complications, and I'm working toward a, um, a final resolution. It's just taken a while because I've moved and um, had different health insurance policies, and I, so I've had to start over a couple of times in the last eight years, but um, I'm finally at a place now where I've been in one place long enough that I've worked my way through and um, I'm actually seeing somebody next month to get that process resolved. So, but, and you know, it's like, do I wish I didn't have complications? Yes. Have they ruined my life? No, no, uh, I'm, I'm my, you know, it's unfortunate to have complications, but this is, this is what happens with surgeries. Surgeries are complex and there are complications. Sometimes they're mild, Sometimes they're moderate. Sometimes they're severe. I consider mine to be more on the moderate scale, but it is ongoing. Sometimes that happens, right? Do you feel so. like with your own informed consent process that you knew that you were signing up for the risk, for the particular risks that you've ended up dealing with? Well, I not only um, signed paperwork with the surgeon, I was at the time and still am very well connected in to a lot of trans men who have already had surgeries, many different kinds. I had been to and actually led and organized and coordinated um, FTM discussion groups. FTM, for people who don't know, is female to male. It's old language, but some of us still use it. Um, so I knew about these things. I read uh, people's accounts of their surgeries. I watched videos. So I was very well informed. But what I wasn't ready for was my surgeon did something that hadn't been discussed in any of our interactions with each other. It was a decision that they made after I was under general anesthesia. And that's why I have the complication that I have now because of the decision that they made and they didn't 
wake me up to talk to me about it. And they didn't go to the waiting room to talk to my wife about it. But that's, that's kind of what you sign up for. So, um, can imagine having some feelings about that. Yeah. I'm not happy. Um, I would have sued him if I had known about that. I was just dealing with all the complications. And when I finally got around to talking to a lawyer, uh, the time had lapsed. You have to bring a lawsuit within one year of learning about the complication or the issue, the medical issue. And I, it was after that period of time. But this surgeon in particular had many people um, file lawsuits that I think were all settled out of court. So, but they're wow. still working as a surgeon. So, because, you know, maybe they're not doing that. Maybe they're getting better now, but, you know, hopefully they've gotten better. They've learned from all those mistakes. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. So, Xander, here's something I want to pick your brain about. Um, the narratives about pathology and the narratives about depathologizing. So, uh, here's what I mean by that. I see a couple of different ways that gender is portrayed and that quote-unquote gender-affirming care is portrayed by um, trans activists, people who really want more access to uh, these procedures and hormones. So what is the narrative of pathology? So the narrative of pathology, they don't explicitly state these things, but you you would have to kind of put it to together. It's the idea that gender dysphoria is a severe um, and persistent mental illness for which these hormones and surgeries, as well as, of course, social transition, is the medically necessary standard of care. Um, so in this way, it's kind of akin to something like cancer, right? Uh, you know, with a cancer patient, the doctor is going to recommend things that are otherwise um, 
invasive, costly, uh, come with high risk of complications. Um, you know, they're going to recommend such extreme medical treatments only if the cancer patient has, you know, a severe enough condition to warrant that because that's what's going to save their life, right? So the narrative here is we need gender-affirming care for all these quote-unquote trans kids now because it's life-saving, right? There's the narrative about suicide. And um, so it's this story that's very medical. And it asks us to believe that gender dysphoria, that there's no other treatment for it. You know, there's no less invasive, less costly, less complicated treatment for this mental health condition. Now, I could tackle that narrative, right? I could I could rip that narrative to shreds, but it's just one narrative, right? The other narrative is there's nothing wrong with having a different gender identity. In fact, it's a wonderful thing to be celebrated. You know, when when you're born, the doctors assign you a sex at birth. It's very likely that they've gotten it wrong. And if they've gotten it wrong, we celebrate you coming out and telling us who you are because you know who you are. And um, tell us your name, tell us your pronouns. And basically, you are entitled to the medical system giving you these quote-unquote gender-affirming hormones and surgeries to affirm your identity, and there's nothing wrong with your identity, right? So in this narrative, we're completely covering up the fact that these are, once again, invasive, costly, come with complications and health risks, and that, that you're asking taxpayer dollars to fund these treatments or that you're asking, you know, the money people and their employers pay into their healthcare plans to fund these things, right? So it's like we're going to use these medical resources um, and the kind of medical model to treat something that we don't want to be seen as a pathology. We don't want to be seen as a disease, as, as something that there's anything wrong with, which is like a mixing of worlds that doesn't make sense to me and I feel like is really logically problematic. But one of my concerns about how trans rights activists behave is that whichever one of these narratives seems to suit their purposes at the moment is the one they go with. And then they flip rapidly back and forth between, on the one hand, gender dysphoria is disabling. We got to save lives by giving these medically necessary treatments. On the other hand, everyone is welcome to choose their gender. <laughs> And doctors are just supposed to help you change your body, but there's nothing wrong with wanting to do that. Do you see what I mean? What are your thoughts on that? Well, when it's put that way, it it sounds very confusing. Um, I I'm not really able to make sense of it, so I could, and I'm in the community, so I would imagine that it'd be difficult for somebody outside of the community to make sense of it. What I can tell you, and I'm using community loosely, there's really no such thing as a community. Um, the, I think there's different quote segments or cohorts with of people that would be considered to be under what they call the trans umbrella, right? And so if there are different messages coming from different cohorts, within this larger community, 
then it would make sense that for people who don't know what all those different cohorts are, they would think that it's conflicting messages coming from one community. And that's not true. It's conflicting messages coming from different parts of the community. And so if you think about in a broad spectrum way, using language that most people have probably already heard, like binary and non-binary, there are binary members of the trans community and there are non-binary members of the trans community. These are two distinctly different sort of experiences in life. And so there's going to be constructs and concepts and processes and ideas differently generated from these two groups. Then within those two larger buckets, you have even smaller buckets like people who were designated female at birth versus people designated male at birth on both of those sides, right? So now you've got from two groups to now four groups. And those experiences are going to be very, very different. And then you bring in all kinds of other things that overlap with that, like their cultural um, upbringing, their religious upbringing, their, you know, like all these different things that, that play into it, their educational level, right? Where did they learn some of these ideas? Did they go off to college, get a gender studies degree, that kind of thing? Um, and so now, if it's the case that some, some individuals are using their platform to make multiple different statements that are all conflicting with each other, that to me does sound like... Manipulative? I, I was going to say maybe an equally troubling word. I was going to say opportunistic in the sense that how many... I, I think a lot of people that are the the making the the most waves are people that are intentionally seeking out i don't know if it's a word or not but virability like they want their they want their their tiktok little i don't know what they call those little things that they they want that stuff to go viral right they they want their message to be heard as far and wide as possible and maybe they're just sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks, what gets the most likes, shares, you know, forwarding things on. I don't want to use any brand names, right? What, get, what gets shared more and what gets people either really excited or really angry? Because I don't think people matter much when they're seeking that influencer, right? It could be making people really angry or it could be making people really happy. I don't right? It's sort of like the troubled kid who'd, and they don't want to be ignored. So they misbehave because they're not getting any positive reinforcement. So they'll get negative. It's better than nothing, right? So I think that maybe there's something akin to that that might be going on. I don't know for sure because I'm not in that world. I'm not a radical activist. I'm not an activist at all. I'm an advocate. I'm not an activist. I'm not on social media. So I have no interest in, I'm not striving for that reachability. So but if, if people understand from outside of the community, if people can understand that I call myself a transsexual man, I started my transition when I was 39. I had surgeries in my 40s. 
I was responsible for my decisions and I was able to manage the consequences, positive and negative, those choices. I did not do it as a child. I don't think that children are um, equipped with the ability to navigate through some of those hurdles. Now, it's possible that people will say, well, their parents are, and um, it's possible. Yes, it's possible that some of these kids have parents that can help them navigate uh, complex, life-changing situation, and I hope that's true, but it's probably also true that not all of those parents are going to be equipped to do that because they're not equipped emotionally or mentally or financially, socially, right, to be able to do that. Um, I don't work with children, so I tend to stay out of the lane of talking about children, but I do know that that's a very uh, sensitive topic. It's one that FAIR is definitely um, talking about, and so I'm involved in those discussions. I um, personally don't think that schools should be acting like um, paraprofessionals in the mental health sense in the classrooms. I think we should be, they should be focusing on academic subjects in the classrooms. I think if uh, schools want to incorporate, um, you know, teaching kids how to do conflict management and how to regulate their emotions that they should bring in specialists, I don't think that's the job of a teacher. Um, I also don't think it's the job of a teacher to be talking about gender identities <laughs> and sexual orientations um, with children. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I hear people say pretty often that if you don't have anybody that you can relate to, right? Like kids need to look up and see somebody. They need to be able to see somebody in roles of authority in their classroom or out in the community or on the television. They need to be able to see these representations to understand who they are. Um, I think that's probably true for some people that they don't have a good sense of self without that external, but not all of us. I didn't need any external confirmation, validation, or representation to develop into knowing who I am and walking the world that way. That doesn't mean that um, I haven't changed, literally changed. Um, that doesn't mean that I was happy with everything, but I didn't need that. And so we have to be able to differentiate between some people need externalized or external validations, um, and maybe we can teach those people how to find that from within by helping them to bolster their self-esteem, right? Their sense of self, identifying their core values, these kinds of things. Um, but that, you know, that's a different topic. But um, I, I think a lot of these messages, which may either be confusing or um, conflicting or and or probably opportunistic or what was the word you used? Manipulative. Um, yeah, manipulative. If that's, you know, we can't dismiss that that's necess not necessarily the case for some people, then I would say, you know, the who the message is coming from, there's going to be a different way to um, handle it. And this is something that we're dealing with internally as a community, which is why people like myself and Buck Angel and Blair White and many other people have 
have become much more involved and them, both of them way before me, um, right? I've been behind the scenes for years and years. They've been out in front taking most of the hits. And, um, but they're, again, we're not a monolith. There's no consensus. That means we have some internal tensions going on in the trans community, so to speak. Right. So this is, this is not just external people going, scratching their head, wondering what the heck's going on. It's happening internal too. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. So a couple directions I want to go. One is I'm curious out of those kind of two uh, belief systems that I described, which you more closely subscribe to, whether you believe that hormones and surgeries are medically necessary treatments for a condition of gender dysphoria or whether you believe they are sort of elective personal choices, whether whether you believe everyone should pick their gender, all this kind of stuff I want your feedback on. I mm-hmm. also am interested that you brought up Buck Angel and Blair White because earlier you described um, the binary versus non-binary split within the trans community. And I read you as binary because you're so obviously male presenting. And Blair White has talked about um, the binary view and said that one of the reasons that she has done all these hormones and surgeries and does the makeup and the dresses and everything is because she wants to blend in with women, not because she wants to be lumped in with some, you know, attempt to destroy the the binary. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, and Buck Angel is another one of those people who's very masculine presenting. Yes. Okay. So I I believe that there are people for which, and I know that Blair and, and Buck talk about this, there are people within the trans community, you know, who are transsexuals for which they really do um, embrace this idea of they have something called gender dysphoria, or for Buck years ago, it was gender identity disorder. Um, it might have actually been gender identity disorder for Blair too, because um, she started transition a few years back. Um, that they really do, um, they do subscribe to that. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, right? That's their frame. Their frame is, I, I have this, I meet the criteria for this thing called gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria. And therefore the treatment is, and they took the treatment, right? They went to the doctor, they got the treatment, and they are in remission, right? <laughs> They're in remission. They are living their lives very successfully, and they are uh, blending in because that's their that's their stated goal. That's their desire. Um, I would say I probably fit the criteria for gender dysphoria. I've just always been a bit resistant to being labeled with something, right? So I don't embrace it in the same way, but I probably fit the criteria for it. Um, I think I do. I think I already looked it up, you know, (laughs) but I I just don't like to, I don't like to pathologize myself. Um, At the same time, we've worked so hard over the last, what, 15, 20 years to destigmatize mental health. And so 
There are people who can now accept that they have a generalized anxiety disorder or major depressive disorder or something like that, rather than not seek treatment and not, right? So it's done really wonderful things. On the flip side, you have people who sort of wear their generalized anxiety or major depressive disorder like a badge of honor and use it as more of um, a way to excuse bad behavior or right so i'm not i'm not I'm, I'm not likening this to the gender thing but right so there there are there are um variations in how people are going to use this destigmatized um movement of mental mental illness so then within gender stuff you have people right that are going to say yes i have a condition or i have a disorder i have a diagnosis this is the treatment i'm going to go seek it through the doctor and and they and it works out for them but then you have people who, um, I think I'm in the middle of this, which is always interesting because I find myself in the middle of a lot of things, right? So it wasn't as if I just one day said, you know, I, I'm going to change my gender because again, for me, my gender didn't change, right? I was masculine presenting. I'm masculine presenting. To me, that's what gender is. Um, I talk about gender as far as gender roles, gender expression, um, gender identity, um, that's a different topic, right? So that's that's a theory. That's a theoretical thing that um, I'm, I don't have a gender identity. I don't talk about myself in that way. And a lot of transsexuals don't. It's, a, it's not a term that you hear very often. So there are going to be people who want to do things like deepen their voice, but they're not going to, they're, so they're going to take like a low dose of a testosterone or they want to, um, they want to be a more feminine presenting male in the world. Well, I mean, get a lot of gay men, not all gay men, but some gay men are very feminine presenting. Um, right. Like, so part of the issue with, with the second category, so to speak of people who are just like playing with gender. Right. And maybe they're saying they're non-binary. They're never going to do any medical treatment at all because we also get told that we get told that there are a lot of trans people who are never going to medically transition. And so we're that's another part of this. That's like maybe a third kind of depathologizing narrative, which is there are a lot of trans people who are never going to medically transition. Well, OK, then then that means there are trans people for which. It's not a do or die situation, right? So I just think what 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 would work in trying to fig sort out all these things is to not reinforce other kinds of binaries, right? To to use a phrase, right? Um, the world is not binary or non-binary, right? There's all kinds of ways in which people are going to express themselves along a feminine or masculine kind of continuum. The roles they're going to play in their family, the way they're, the clothes they're going to wear, the way they're going to style their hair, their mannerisms when they're interacting with people. That that's just that's just individual, right? That's that's uh, a lot of it's probably innate, and some of it might be kind of borrowed along the way, and. Um, but it's hard to be able to differentiate some, see, it's, it's hard to talk about. So I, I don't know if I'm even making sense because I think people want to make concrete sense of it, 
right? Like I, I hear from you what I think is you really want to make sense of it. And I don't know if that's possible because we're talking about human beings and we're complex and we're convoluted and we're inconsistent and we're um, changing and the language isn't caught up yet. And so, which is why I don't have a really good concrete way to describe my experience. I could, I think some people hear other people's stories and go, oh yeah, well that makes sense. And they do more of a revisionist history and they apply that to their own because it's nice to have sort of a sense of being certain. But one, one of the courses that I teach is on how to navigate uncertainty. And so, as you can see, it's uncomfortable. Um, it's sloppy. Uncertainty is very, very difficult for us to grapple with. Um, I don't know if it's universal. It's definitely present in our culture here in the United States. And so... I think that's I think that's part of the issue is I think people want to find certainty within something where maybe it doesn't exist. So, let me ask you this. Do you personally believe that taxpayer dollars and money that people pay into the healthcare system should be spent on quote gender affirming hormones and surgeries? I think that there are a lot of things that health insurance plans cover that not everybody would agree on. They want their money to cover those things. That's why they just collect the same amount of money from each person, and each person who has a plan gets the care that's deemed medically necessary for them by their medical providers. It's not a decision being made by any external forces. So then, but not all health plans cover gender services that would be for transgender people. So not all plans do. Right. So that brings us still. back to the question of medical necessity, right? Like, yes. yes. And, and this is where we probably disagree. <laughs> you know, my stance is that I don't believe these are medically necessary. And, and I don't believe that it's a good use of my taxpayer dollars or the money that I pay toward my healthcare premium, which is a lot because I'm self-employed, like I'm paying everything, you know, I, I don't feel like it's a good use of medical resources when it's experimental, when it's harmful to many people, when it's driven by ideology and big pharma. That's mm. my stance, right? Yeah. So when you talk about medical necessity, you're kind of you're kind of saying, well, it's up to the healthcare provider and their relationship with the patient, and that's where I think I have a lot less trust than you do in what's driving that decision making because I think so much of it is mm. big pharma and ideology, and I think that a lot of I know you you steer clear of working with kids, and that's probably part of why we have different perspectives is because I'm very concerned with what's happening to kids, um, but I, I think that you know we've seen such an exponential increase. And we have to look at the cultural and systemic factors that are driving that increase. And how can you justify, you know, how can you on the one hand say something's medically necessary, but not say that you're on board with the model of pathology? Because I, th I think you kind of have to, you know, in, or in order to be logically consistent, you would have to believe that these 
quote-unquote treatments are medically necessary for the treatment of a condition so severe as to warrant this because this is not how we treat other conditions you know like and you know right because you've done a little bit of clinical work like if someone comes to you with generalized anxiety disorder what are you going to do you're providing them with maybe weekly counseling and if it's severe enough you say okay maybe you should see a psychiatrist maybe take an anti-anxiety med if that's the right path for you or maybe work with a naturopath clean up your diet right but yeah. if someone's coming to you with generalized anxiety disorder you're not going to hospitalize them like you don't hospitalize someone until they're on the verge of suicide and can't keep themselves safe at home right so yeah. when yeah. it comes to you get them into mindfulness practices <laughs> right like it's our responsibility as healthcare providers yeah. to assess what is the least invasive least expensive um lowest risk minimum necessary treatment for a condition. So in order to say that it's medically mm. necessary to do something so life-changing, so invasive, experimental, costly, so many side effects, you you have to believe that that's really necessary, that that is the only treatment and that it, it's a condition that that's that's that severe so as to yeah. warrant that, you know? It's like it has yeah. to be like a cancer level diagnosis. That's where it doesn't add up to me. So, well, I think one of the things is that with gender dysphoria it runs from mild to severe, right? As as stipulated in the DSM. So you can have you can have people who have really mild versions of it, moderate versions, and really severe. Um, medically necessary doesn't. There's like two categories within medically necessary, right? There's emergent, like you have to have your appendix out right now, or you're gonna die. And then there's elective right? Not cosmetic. That's a completely different category. So under elective, that means that um, it's something that can be pursued, but it's not life-threatening. And I, you know, my understanding is that in, um, in a medical sense, like say within WPATH, right, within the standards of care, they've adopted the language of gender-affirming care is medically necessary care, but it's still elective in the sense that it's not life-threatening like like your appendix is about to burst. However, I think flip? that some people, some people, some people, I think, do take it to like the appendectomy. I think they do take it there, and I think that's... Um, maybe a little bit of kind of a runaway train kind of experience. Um, um, I, but they I cannot say discount. that it saves lives. I mean, they say I know. it saves well, they, lives. They say it's necessary yes. for suicide prevention, which yes. makes it feel really urgent. And if something's elective, yes. like you wouldn't, you wouldn't do, I mean, when it comes to like elective, okay, let me give an example just to yeah. try to like make it real. Okay. So I have nerve pain and, um, it's really annoying. <laughs> um, it, and it's in my elbows and it comes and goes. There are things that make it better or worse, but it never fully goes away. And I've been living with this for over two years now. It's really annoying. Um, and, uh, you know, some things I should ideally be doing to uh, manage it are to make sure that I'm walking every day, that my elbows are swinging loosely and that my arms are spread out nice and relaxed, that I'm not always bending my elbows. So there's postural things. Also, I find that um, soaking in um, or doing a float tank really helps reset mm. my uh, postural issues. So potentially, if I really wanted to, 
I could get a surgery. Um, you know, if this is still bothering me for another 10, 20 years, or if it just becomes unmanageable, a couple of options that doctors have told me are theoretically available. One would be like taking something like gabapentin, um, which affects nerve pain. And another would be that there is an elective surgery that kind of cuts into, uh, that basically like moves where the nerve is passing through the joint to take the pressure off the nerve in my elbow. Um, so there's an example of an elective surgery that would be, I mean, you could consider it medically necessary because there's still a diagnosed condition, right? There's the mm -hmm. nerve pain. And this is a treatment that affects that condition. And then it is really my decision as the patient to say like, how disabling is this condition? How much is it tormenting me every day? And and it, it is also the doctor's job to be able to take a patient like me and look at the prognosis. Like they wouldn't recommend that elective surgery six months into this condition, you know, because yeah. at first yeah. it's like six, six months in, they're like, let's give it another six months, right? Now it's been more than two years. They're like, well, you can either keep living with this or at some point in the future, if it gets bad enough, if you want, you can have a surgery. But I feel like there's still that delicate balance of like what makes the benefits outweigh the costs of doing something yeah. more invasive? Well, it's, you know, before, before, um, surgical procedures that would be considered like gender affirming surgeries, just, you know, let's just use the language. That's not how I talk, but let's just use that language. Um, so prior to them being covered by health insurance more broadly, people were spending years saving up money to get surgeries. I mean, I know trans men that spent four to 10 years working two jobs to save up enough money just to get chest reconstruction or top surgery, right? Because it was 10,000 bucks and they needed to take a couple of weeks off of work. And, you know, so it's, it's pretty, it was very, it's very expensive. And um, so would they have liked to have gotten it earlier? Sure. Um, was it a bummer that they had to wear like a, you know, a compression t-shirt, you know, or a binder, they call them for all those years? Yeah. Um, was that what they had to do? Yes. Right. And so I think there, there was sort of a built-in system back in the day that insurance didn't cover it. So it took time to get the funds for it. Also, the way the standards of care used to be is you had to function in the world you had to do what was called first a real life test, and then it got the language got changed to real life experience. In previous um, versions of the standards of care, you had to live in the world for a year before you could even get hormones or surgeries, for sure. Right? It depended on pe people interpreted it right, and because um, they're not rules, they're just they're standards, they're guidelines. But once the insurance companies got into it, that's when I noticed some of this language shifting to using terminology like medically necessary and life-saving. And I think it's because it's the only way the insurance companies would cover it. And with the insurance companies covering it, it made it more uh, financially accessible to a broad range of people. And because at the time, the only two groups of people who had access to surgeries were either the people who were well-off or the people at the other end of the spectrum through Medicaid. Some states through their Medicaid, even back in the day, even some health insurance plans through employers in the 60s and 70s were doing these procedures, but it was very rare, right? And so once insurance companies came on and started 
you know, like they had to be convinced. And I think the convincing started with saying there aren't very many people who are going to be wanting these surgeries, right? The first, like the first city, San Francisco, to try this out with their health plan for city workers, um, they raised the premium to be able to pay for what they thought was going to be this avalanche of, you know, high cost. And at the end of the year, they had a huge surplus. So they cut the, you know, the um, the, par- the part that they were charging, oh, they cut that in half. The next year, still another surplus. So they eliminated it altogether and just had a, they didn't put any any hikes on it. It just went back to the the, the lower rate um, because there wasn't an avalanche of people seeking these surgeries. That, of course, has changed because now there is a huge wave of people that are seeking these surgeries. Um, and so there's a different issue to contend with. But I think that in the beginning, I think there was an attempt by advocates within healthcare systems to get insurance companies to provide this care for people. And it was maybe packaged a little bit in a sense of urgency or necessity. Um, but that language has it's changed and it's become, it's sort of like I was saying with this, with the organizations that are scaring people, right? They've found a way to, um, to use language that connotes urgency and the direness of it. Um, For example, I've heard outside of the medical context, but within the sort of social justice context, I've heard people are now starting to use the word terrorize. They're being terrorized. And I'm like, do you even know what terror is? Like, so they're they're using this word and they're completely obliterating the reality of what it is to be terrorized, to live in terror. Um, and so I think this escalation of language is both in the social movement and also in that medical movement. And I think it was a means to an end. We want more coverage, more broadly. Um, and But it just kept going and going and going. I mean, it really has... Um, I, I, there's, no, there's no reason for me to deny that there isn't some function of profitability from big pharma um, or ideology getting into the mix. Um, I think those things are present in a lot of issues. So... How could we just outright deny that they're not in this issue also? Um, I have no way of knowing that they are or they aren't, but my history of, of advocacy um, and my time on the planet says, mm, probably, I just don't know the degree because I haven't researched it, I haven't looked into it, um, but it, it, it you know, um, monetary gain <laughs> is, you know, we're a capitalist society. So monetary gain is a driving force in how we function. Um, and I do know that ideology is um, in the community. And so I do know that a lot of the conflict and the tensions and the disagreements and the um, the things that are happening within the trans community are because of the heterodoxy versus the orthodoxy elements, um, you know, or individuals, orthodox and heterodox individuals in our community. I count myself among the heterodox. Well, Xander, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Absolutely. It's been a, it's been an honor and a privilege. I've really enjoyed it. I hope that, you know, I definitely learned some things from you and about your perspective and about some, some of the ways in which you are um, interpreting and, and hearing the messaging that's coming from people that I would, that are part of my community again, so to speak. So it's helpful for me to know how the messages are being heard. I think it's important mm. for us to pay attention to that. Mm. I appreciate and that. And I'd love to keep and talking. So, yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you? You say you're not I on social a, media. Do you have a I'm blog not, or? No. I have a you website. You have a few other interviews, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got, because I'm a part of the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, uh, people can find me and the work that I do at fairforall.org. Um, I have my own website, which is um, xanderkeg.net. I'm on LinkedIn. That's my, if you call it social media, that's that's my one place. Um, for those of you on Locals, look me up on, on Locals under Xanderology. And yeah. All right. Thanks, Xander. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, Get outside and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.